0: Welcome to the Earn Your Edge Podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Alta's Performance, and this week we are joined by Tom Lewis, a two-time champ on the European Tour, one of the best young players in the game. If our American audience uh, is not as familiar with Tom, you will be soon. He's splitting time on the PGA and European Tour now. Growing up, Tom was an absolute world-beater, touted as one of the best players in England, a Walker Cup player. He led the Open Championship as an AM, and then was the European Rookie of the Year after winning in just his third start. And despite all that promise and early success, his career has not been without some adversity after that fast start. He wouldn't win again for another seven years. And Tom shares in great detail how he overcame some demons and made improvements in performance that has brought him back to where he is now as a top 50 player in the world and poised to make good on all the promise of the early days of his career. He's got to watch this season after you hear him tell his story and share how he's overcome some mental struggles. I'm positive that you will become a Tom Lewis fan. We certainly are. So please enjoy this episode. Before you do, another shout out to our friends at Total Golf Trainer. I guess that I've pulled this out in about 75% of my lessons in the last week. It has absolutely become my go-to training aid. If you haven't gotten one, I highly recommend that you head over to TotalGolfTrainer.com to purchase the TGT 3.0 kit. Use the promo code earn your edge for a nice discount. It can be used to remedy pretty much anything that you're working on in your swing. It comes with a number of different attachments and different size foam rods that can be attached to the club or body to provide customized feedback during your swing to help improve your ball striking short game and even your putting. It is the Swiss army knife of our coaching and we're proud to partner with this great company. Please go check them out. But now enjoy episode 80 of the earn your edge podcast with Tom Lewis.
1: Speaking of friends who you've got some dirt on I wanted to kick it off by talking about your victory back in the boys amateur championship not necessarily the shot details but the conversation going back and forth and then how much you let Eddie Pepperell have it these days when you're when you're in and around him because you got that up on him then
2: Yeah so funny thing was is I beat Eddie there and the other day when we played in Dubai we were playing the second round so I shot six over he shot six over and he was he come off and he was like Tom Tom come over and I was like yeah and he's like um just before you think about pulling out <laughs> he's like we could be playing tomorrow together so just think about it I'm like Ed I'm not pulling out I was like I'm never pulling out so we ended up playing together and he's got off to a flyer I think he's like four under through five or something and I'm like Ed you need to play with me more often and he turns around and he says this is just comeback for the um I've been waiting for this since 2009 I'm like <laughs> And I'm level par at this point. I'm like, it's not over yet, Ed. And by about 10 or 11, I think I'm one ahead. So he must have been really not happy. <laughs> so it was, and then obviously, he was just really in a mood all week. So he probably wishes he didn't say that now.
0: Yeah, right on. <laughs> <laughs> We do kind of want to start whenever we have these conversations, it's nice to have that origin story. And yours is a pretty spectacular one in golf, like right off the bat, a lot of success. And I'm curious to know what that early involvement looked like. Like, I know that you had the support of your dad during that time. So can you kind of tell us that early story of you with golf?
2: Yeah basically I was dyslexic so I didn't really enjoy school it was always a real challenge for me and then my dad was a golf pro and I went to the driving range after school and I literally ran onto the bay and bucket 40 balls and I hit like 25 of them, like literally every day and then I'd lock up with my dad you know on at 9 p.m at night and I did that as a kid and then we got a little bit older and dad dad's confidence has always been a little low so he was kind of like we need to we need a better coach you know you need to go to a better coach so we chose to go to pete cowen when i was about 15 and then yeah. i worked with pete until i turned professional for about six years and pete did a great job with me and my dad overseed it he just my dad's very simple like grip, stance, let it go and pete was a little bit more technical and it worked well and then when i turned professional there was a lot of pressure on me. So I put a lot of expectations on myself and I needed to basically try and get as many people out away from me as possible. So I ended up obviously leaving Pete and then trying to work with my dad for a bit. But we've always clashed because we've always wanted the best. We argue about stuff that we agree with, that we're agreeing on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Argue for the sake of arguing, right? Yeah. yeah, I know a few of those relationships.
2: Yeah, it was bad. But, you know, now we're a little bit older and I've kind of gone my own way with it. My dad's always there for me. He wants the best for me, and he trusts me. You know, I think he yeah. he knows that everything's going to work out, and it's never been anything to do with my talent or ability. It's more between the years, and you know, I, I think it's just going to be a matter of believing in myself as much as everybody else. Yeah, so that's I, kind of a rough, rough idea of my growing up with my dad.
1: Well, I'm going to get you to tap the brakes a bit because I feel like we just moved at a thousand miles an hour and went through about. 10 or 12 years of conversation in little more than 45 seconds. So we're going to go back a little bit and put some context around your dad and your upbringing because like when you talk to fellow pros, people that do what we do, whether they're here in America or in Australia or in the UK, typically there is some sort of like lineage into the game. You came to the game because mom or dad uh, played the game or an uncle in my case, But yet oftentimes that doesn't necessarily tell a story of the success that you had as a young kid. Yet when you create like the color around who your dad was and what he accomplished as a player himself, then it starts to tell more of the true story. So can you share with our listeners who your dad was and his career as a player?
2: My dad was a... He played on the European Tour for a couple of years and my dad's a very modest guy. You know, he plays a lot of things down and he would never actually tell me a lot of these stories about him and where he's played and what he's done and what he's achieved. So it's very hard for me to give you a history on my dad because he doesn't like talking about it, but from what other people have said about him, that he hit the ball great and his confidence was low. You know, he didn't believe in himself enough, which is obviously a lot about me. It tells you a lot about myself and the way I am. But the funny thing was, I spoke to Mark Lytton, who is a European tour chief referee, and he said, Tom, I've got a funny story to tell about your dad. Um, he said, he, we just qualified on the European tour, for, at tour school, we've done six rounds and your dad's basically top t- top top it or something. And he's sitting in this room and he's everyone's really happy. Everyone's really chuffed, They're, everyone's really excited, they can't play, wait to play on the European tour. And my dad just sits there and goes, this isn't for me, I'm not good enough for this, and just sort of gets up and left. wow so you know like that's sort of my dad and he played for a couple of years and he he just wanted to be a dad i just think he just wanted to have a family and, and just ended up teaching and um he grew up with nick faldo at the same golf club so he knows a lot about how what it took to become a good player and i think that's probably a big reason why i'm probably am where i am because he was he had the knowledge of knowing how hard you needed to work to be successful
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, fact check me here. There was an interesting piece that I read where part of your development as a young guy, clearly guided by your dad, was hitting a crap ton of long irons. He felt like if you could be a really good long game player off the tee and into greens with five and four and three iron, then that would give you a dramatic head start. Is, that, is there truth to that?
2: Dad never really liked the short game whether that's because he was something that he wasn't good at or whether he just felt that the long game was something you couldn't teach the short game you could maybe teach and Mm -hmm. that was his belief so he was like Tom we need to grow you up on a big golf course where you're able to hit driver and the short game will come you know we'll touch that up as you get older and so that was his belief so I always just hit a lot of golf balls so I strike it well and obviously everyone has their own opinion some people say that obviously it's all about the flat stick and being able to hold putts and other people would say, well, you've got to get it to the green. So if you, you know, you can be amazing with the flat stick and hold a whole load of putts, but if you can't get it to the green in good amount of shots, then you're obviously going to never shoot a good score. So it depends on your beliefs. And my dad's belief was it's easier to sh- teach the short game than it would be to hit a 310 yard drive in the air, you know, down right. the middle. So got that's it. the way he sort of taught me as a kid.
1: Yeah. So do the difficult stuff first. That makes a whole lot of sense. Sorry, Corey, go ahead.
0: I'm always curious when, especially when we speak to the English golfers, you know, where they have a little bit different developmental uh, situation than we have in the U S where you've got the English golf squads. And I assume that you grew up around the best players in the UK and you had a pretty good feel for kind of where you stood amongst that group of players. Are there things that you can point to early on because you were probably more successful than many of those peers that you'd say, you know what, I'm a little bit of different than these players in this regard, not only just your technical skills, your ball striking, but were there kind of traits or characteristics that you felt like separated yourself from that other group of great players at that time?
2: Yeah. I think with the way that I had uh, my relationship with my dad, my the big key to my dad was being humble and being respectful, but also being the most professional and being able to be the p- most professional amateur you could be. And that was something that I had over everyone else. I wasn't the best player in the whole teams, but my demeanour and my work ethic was better than everybody else's. And that's something that gave me a little bit of, of an edge over everybody else. So when I went to these England training camps over a couple of weekends and trips away to Spain, I would make a big effort to make sure I was up before everybody else that I was, that my fitness was better than everybody else's, that, my skill tests were better than everybody else's. That doesn't mean that if I was, we played an 18 or 36 hole competition, I would win it, but I would want to make sure that everybody knew that I was the person to worry about because I was able to be the best at everything and I was working harder than everyone else. So that was something my dad brought to me going into those England teams. And and think also we were very brave in knowing to say no in certain tournaments. So if, if a golf course didn't suit me, I would be like, I'm not going to play that because I can't win this tournament because this would suit Eddie Pepper or this would suit Laurie Cantor or this would suit Danny Willett, you know? And I'd be like, I can't win, so we're not going to play. So we'd pull out. Do you know what I mean? So that's something that we did as an amateur, which we were really good at.
1: It's interesting you talk so much there about like, Pro behaviors and living those pro behaviors is a recommendation from your dad in an early age. That was the technical development. That was the when to rise, um, how to kind of direct yourself in the gym and um, just as much the pro mindset pieces. And I flashed to, out of all the research they did, it it was always like finished high in this, finished high in that. I mean, for crying out loud, you lost to Peter O'Malley as an amateur in the New South Wales Open and then went on the following week, right, and finished 12th in the Aussie Open. And when you stepped into those events against pro-level players after having competed largely only as an amateur, I think, before that, what was it about those mindset pieces that allowed you to level up without skipping a beat, so to speak?
2: I think because of the preparation I had and the mindset I took into amateur events, whether it was a county tournament, whether it was an English tournament, whether it was an international boys event or men's event, going then to a PGA tour event over in, in Australia, it just felt like another golf course. At the end of the day, the golf ball doesn't know what golf course you're playing, you know, how big the tournament is. It just sort of was a matter of getting the ball from A to B. So Mm -hmm. I had that mindset as a youngster so when I played in those events I was very naive I didn't really think much I just spent well this course feels like I can shoot four under par so if I shoot four four under pars, I might win the tournament and that's obviously something that I nearly did in in that uh, New South Wales Open and then when I did that obviously I was gutted I really was like I didn't win that tournament but obviously I went to then Australia um, I think it was the Aussie Open yeah. and finished 12th and I didn't play that great but. You know, I think Jeff Ogilvie ran away with it. I think that was when he was playing really well. But I sort of felt that I was comfortable in these positions and there was loads to improve. And I think if I was playing out of my skin and finished 12th, then I would have a bit of an issue because I'd say, Dad, we've got nowhere to go here. This is Mm -hmm. the best we can do. Whereas we were kind of going to them tournaments and saying, well, my wedge play wasn't great. I didn't drive it that well. You know, I've missed a lot of putts, but I finished 12th and only won a tournament. So once we get these sorted you can achieve great things and that was things that we did from a young age
0: yeah i mean that there's as cameron said there's so many success early on and he didn't even mention being really young and and having the lead of your first open championship and then really early on I, I don't know i think it's your third event on the european tour you win and i'm sure at that time you're thinking that this is going to continue because this is the way that it's always been. But one of the best parts about having these conversations is talking about the adversity. And especially when you're you're talking to a player that's come out the other side. And I know that that all that success was followed by five, six years where it wasn't, quite as good and you had a rough patch uh, as is inevitable when when someone's pursuing golf at the level that that you're chasing it is there anything that you can pinpoint during that time whether a change in behavior or a change in in anything that you were doing that could have been a causal factor for for that early success waning in that period after 2012
2: well that's a polite way of putting it i think <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, i think The things that changed is that I had more doubt. You know, I think me and my dad probably didn't have enough stubbornness and belief that the direction that we were going in was the right direction. I think we tried to improve too much too quickly and we hit the panic button a little bit and stress, anxiety came in. And I was sort of going down all types of routes to try and get better. But then I got completely lost and. I felt that the only way to to was was to get better was to hit rock bottom and I think subconsciously over those five six years I was kind of wanting to uh, run away from the old Tom Lewis of the Tom Lewis of 2011 you know the guy that led the Open the guy that's named after Tom Watson I was like I don't want to be this person anymore you know like I've won my third tournament, but I haven't won since like, you know, I suck. Like I don't want to, I don't (laughs) want to be this person. And I think that over those years, I just didn't find something that basically worked for me. And I kind of gave up a little bit and my work ethic wasn't as good. And I was just hoping for a good week and, Then I got to the point where I was like, you know what, I just want to lose everything. The only way I can get better is if I lose everything. And then basically that's what happened. And then I made a decision of, you know what, I need to go against the grain. I probably need to decide to go to America and work with a coach and work on my swing and completely forget about my results and just focus on the process of something I want to get better at. And I got my work ethic back. You know, I just was, I was working harder and I was more confident and I was writing things down every day and I was like this is going to work and then I'd play tournaments and I'd shoot over par but I'd be like I know I'm doing the right things Mm -hmm. so I was much more confident in my process which is probably what I did as an amateur but in then six years I was more focused on the result and I wasn't used to losing as much as I was you know missing as many cuts as I did because when I played as an amateur I'd finish in the top 10 no matter how I played I didn't win every tournament but I was always with nine old sky always had a chance and I wasn't not used to missing cuts and I'd look over my shoulder and think I'm, I'm better than these people but they're beating me and I sort of beat me I just beat myself up and then I got to the point where well you can't get any worse Tom so I basically took the approach in 2018 whatever happens it can't get worse so when I hit it hit a bad shot I was like well I'm used to this I've done it for years <laughs> So don't worry about it and then it just got you know my bad shots got better and then my good shots were good and I basically Focused on all the good stuff and sort of discarded all the bad stuff. And that's how really I got to where I am now.
0: But I think it's beautiful insight the difference between you're focusing on the process rather than the results and that being a part of why you came out of that period. But as a coach, I'm thinking, what are the signposts along the road that you were looking to that gave you that kind of conviction that? this is right what i'm doing i can trust i have to to stick to this because i'm sure there were plenty of maybe momentary glimpses at positive performance that then ended up not lasting very long so what was the difference this time as you go to to your work on technique in miami and the things that told you yes we're clear on this this is definitely the road forward i think when I was trying to
2: speak to my dad about what I wanted to feel and the way he sees things. He's very old school and he basically sees it as a turn and a turn. And when I was doing that, I was turning off of the ball and then I couldn't really get back on the ball. So I sort of backed up and backed up even more. So everything was sort of starting to the right with big draws. And then occasionally I just hold it off and just block it. So I said to dad, like, I feel like it's hard work. I don't want to do this anymore. I feel like I need to be a bit more handsy. So my dad was like, I don't know how to teach that. You're going to have to go to someone else. So I was basically like, okay, see you later. So <laughs> I was like, basically decided that I'd get a second opinion. And I went to a guy at Queenwood where I'm a member in the UK. And there was an American, like an, actually an English guy, but he was an American coach and he was working in, in the UK in the summer. And he listened to what I had to say and he told me some nice things and we slowly started working together and what David was able to do for me was use some of the information that he has you know he worked I think under Jim McLean so he's you know Jim's obviously a well-known coach and he's very good at listening to a, a pupil and sort of I'm very good at te- explaining what I can and can't do under pressure and we've made this great relationship of this is what I want to work on. How am I going to achieve it? And I was very open to listening to new ideas. Whereas before, when my dad would tell me something, I'd be like, I don't want it. Or when Butch told me something, it would be very much the same as what my dad told me. And I'd be like, it's not working for me, you know? And when everyone's telling me how great I am, but I'm not really achieving anything, it was hard to believe in myself when everyone else was telling me. So I just wanted to get away from it. I felt like going to Miami was like a fresh start. And that's where David worked in the winters. So I think for me, it was just a combination of things. And I think I I always believe that things happen for a reason and it just happened to be that David was the perfect guy for me at that time. And I was willing to listen to someone else.
1: The effectiveness that's demonstrated by your ascent up the world rankings and your results after working with David is clear the, I guess, initial part of that relationship was David showing understanding and, I guess, creating some new ideas in your mind that were fresh and innovative. But I'm looking to understand the mechanics of the feedback piece of the instruction. Was it very similar to what you saw with your dad? Meaning, did did dad use technology? Did he use video? Have you been a big video proponent um, seeking feedback to know that you're heading in the right direction? Or did that change when you went to a fresh face and Frankly, a, a pretty young coach in David.
2: I was never, dad was never really into technology, neither was Butch and We were, they were very much about watching the ball flight and they were sort of, you know, they liked seeing the ball start out to the right and come back. And I think with the new technology in the ball, I just don't think that that's as consistent now as it was back then. I think when you do hit high draws, it's difficult to control with less spin. You know, I feel like it's easy to push them out to the right and or just, you know, completely, you know, catch flyers and, and do all sorts of things. So I wanted the ball to start a little straighter. So when we worked together, me and David, we looked at the track man and he was saying, look, your attack angle is inconsistent. It's, it's, it's fluctuating between like 12 and four, you right. know, like it was completely, it's really steep one minute and then really shallow the next minute. With the same so, club or you're just talking about through the back? With the same club. Oh, no, gosh. with the same club, whatever that was, it was like 12 on the down then it would be four. And mm. so obviously he was explaining to me, he's like, look, Tom, with this attack angle shows that the the ball is going to be coming out at different spins, different trajectories. You're not gonna be able to control distance. And if you can't control distance, then we're not gonna be able to improve from here. So what we need to do is try and get your attack angle and your swing pass more neutral. So I was like, Yeah, okay, I agree with you. So I've always liked being shallow, but how mm. I used to get shallow was I'd back up to shallow it, you know, and drag it left. Mm. But as soon as I stayed on it, I start sort of getting really steep on it which is why the fluctuation was 12 and 4 or 12 and 6 and whatever so then we're now working a lot on keeping my body and center stable you know keeping my head on the ball on the way back and getting the club a little more outside on the way back as well as I get it a little bit risky on the takeaway and get it stuck behind me and then back up to say basically get it up in the air so we basically worked on just keeping me more centered swinging the club more up and not around me and allowing the club to come down and shallow out And now I'm really shallow and it helps with flyers in the rough. Like I don't get flyers in the rough at all just because I'm so shallow. I don't come in steep and I catch these flyers all the time. So we basically worked on that a lot and we worked a lot of that on my short game as well. You know, my short game was very steep and driven and I'd obviously catch everything out the bottom groove and hit these low spinny shots that would spin from left to right. So then we started working on trying to get the club shallower on the way down and trying to keep my center. And that's basically stuff that we've worked on for a long time now.
0: Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Titleist and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons. Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T-Series. The engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T-Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel, unlike anything Tideless has ever designed. Visit Tideless.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today.
1: I want to pull on a deeper thread there, particularly as it relates to the short game, but I'll get to the question here in a, in a second because clearly we have friends, uh, similar friends, I should say. And when Corey and I asked Laurie Canada to provide us some of the intel for this call, one of the things he mentioned, in fact, prominently mentioned was that you worked hard on your mind, that he mentioned that you're frankly unrecognizable from a few years back. You're the most positive guy in the room where there was a time when you when you weren't that way and that kind of mindset transformation. It doesn't come by any level of accident or chance. It's the result of intention and a hard work and effort. So the first part of the question is do you have a sports psychologist, a mental game guru to to help you with that? Or was that just conversations with David and conversations with yourself or like a tight-knit team? And then the second part of the question, so first part again, was there any help, what, help on that? The second part of the question was, you're quoted as saying the struggle with the short game, you, you call them the yips. It was a complete mental block. He woke up every day worrying and panicking that you couldn't hit the green with a simple chip shot. And that's really the common man's problem as well. I mean, we try and solve that problem for the average amateur. So unpack the mental side and how you went through this transformation.
2: Well, yeah, I did work with a psychologist, a guy called Patrick Alban, who works with David a little bit in Miami. And Mm -hmm. I said to Pat that these are the things that I struggle with. I wake up every day worrying that if I miss the green, I can't get it on the green, and I feel like a fraud. Basically, I'm playing with the best players in the world. I'm getting hyped up a bit, and I can't get it on the green from five yards. What do I do? You know. And he was like, "Look, what do you where do you want to what do you want to achieve in the next six months?" And we sort of made a little plan of how out of ten, where's my short game? Where's Where's my long game? Where's my mental approach? You know, all this sort of stuff. And we tried to every single month reassess where we were at with their numbers. And it, it really helped. And I, like I said, I I couldn't get any worse so I could only get better, but the only way I could get better was consistency. Mm -hmm. So with David, I was like, I need to find a system that works for me. And, you know, it might not have been authentic or, you know, it might not have been, what most people would have done, but I felt comfortable doing what I was doing, which was whether that was turning my left foot out, getting my sternum ahead of the ball, and get my eyes sort of feeling like they were my left eye was closer to my left shoulder, so I felt like the club would work more on the outside, and and then I would shallow it out as soon as possible on the way down because I would narrow it all the time. So it was like sounds complicated there, but you know, whilst I was doing that, it was really complicated at first, but because I did it for three months for like six hours every day, it got become more simple. And I felt confident. And then all of a sudden I could go for par five greens in two and not worry about it. So then it was like a snowball effect. But imagine waking up every single day, working on something that you, you hated. You know, like you just, you're like worried every day of going to work. I mean, and I was, I was chipping away and there was members and my coach, obviously David is hyping me up saying, this guy's great. And I was like 300, 400 in the world. And this guy's going to be good. And I'm on the chipping area. And I'm like, if anyone looks at me, this is embarrassing because it's this, this grainy grass into me, onto firm greens. So I'm yeah. like, this isn't happening. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was like, and the chipping, the chipping area was on the driving range. You couldn't like get away hide, from You couldn't, couldn't hide. hide <laughs> I couldn't hide behind a tree or anything. And I was like, right, okay, I'm going to have to just do this, you know? And then I just kept doing it, kept doing it. And I sort of tried to shut that out a little bit. So it worked a lot with my coach and it worked a lot with the psychologist. And so that did help. And the second part, Cam, was what did you want me to say about the second part?
1: I don't remember. It's been, I was just, I was so Uh, enthralled in how you were describing that. (laughs) I'm
2: I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's my Um, fault for asking. That's okay. So yeah, that was basically, that was the
0: situation. What you described there, like the imposter syndrome, those feelings of fear and embarrassment and shame, those are like really powerful negative things yeah. to overcome. And then back to what to Cameron's question there was how Lori describes you now as being the most positive guy in the room. That's a stark contrast in, in those, two, those two places. So whether it's something that you're doing as a strategy from a sports psychologist, or can you tell us how the self-talk has changed, like how you've been able to shift that self-talk? I get that your technique has improved and that you worked your ass off to get it better. That's certainly requisite. That that's part of it that has to happen. But man, those conversations that go on in your head have to change. So how did you make that shift?
2: Honestly, well, like i say it's not it's not perfect you know what i mean like i still struggle occasionally i have dips and i know that it's always going to be something i'm going to fight but it's like jack nicholas says he doesn't have to be the best player in the bu- out of the bunker because he never really goes in them so for me it's like if i'm going to win a tournament i'm going to hit a lot of greens and a whole lot of putts, So i'm not going to need to chip that much but providing i know that i can step up to augusta at, at, on the 18th and lob it over the bunker if I need to up and down in three do you know what I mean like mm-hmm. if I can do yeah. that I'm fine but they were stuff that I couldn't do before I'd have to I'd have to have put around the bunker do you know what I mean and sort of right. played it like, <laughs> like a zigzag exactly. but, <laughs> um, but now like I say I think for me it was like if I don't tell myself I can do it then I haven't got a chance and so I basically just become overly positive with everything. And and when I'm outside of golf, like I am super positive about everything. Like I believe anything is possible and I'm really laid back. And when I was younger, I'd be really intense and serious and professional and, you know, do the Tiger Woods way. But I'm not actually like that in real life. I'm actually chilled out and really relaxed and funny. But I was trying to get that side of my life into my golf. And so when I played with Laurie, like I'm super positive. Like I played with Laurie today at Queenwood. Nice. And we had a great time and he's had a great year and um, he's a really good friend of mine. So I hope he hasn't told you too much, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: haven't disclosed it all yet. I
1: haven't used all the bullets in my gun. <laughs> okay. okay. Are you telling us that there's no room these days for you to call yourself a tosser or a wanker on the golf course and berate yourself for doing, doing silly things, whether those are execution errors or strategy mistakes?
2: I think for me, it's like, we're always going to make mistakes and we're always going to think bad things. But if we can like get them nine or 10 seconds in that, in that routine before like nailed on, then it's going to definitely help the process of going out, you know? So I think for me, I, like I would walk up from a par five, if I've missed a green, I've got 220 yards where I'm worried about what's going to come. Like I'm hoping it's buried or I'm hoping it's in the lip of a bunker or I hope it's in the bunker or in the rough. Cause if it's on a, if it's on a flat lie out, perfect grass and I've got to lob it over the green I'm like what am I going to do right and now I'm like right I can't approach it like that I'm going to have to be like imagine if I'm playing with Laurie Cantor at Queenwood and I'm walking up all I'm going to tell him is you you know that this is going in right you're in trouble you know stuff like this and they're the things that I needed to convince myself to t- try and do, and I did it at the WGC when I played well. I, you know, I got nervous there and made mistakes coming in. But all I told myself is, I'm at Queenwood and I'm and I'm playing with my friends, and I can't believe they haven't given me this putt, or I can't believe that you know they're not even giving me the match yet. You know, yeah. like I try and convince yeah. myself that.
0: Too beautiful. Rather than
2: you know, I'm in the WGC and my career counts on these last few holes. Like right. that isn't going to help anyone, you know? It's
1: not going to help at all. Those, those are two beautiful strategies you just you um, mentioned right there, minimizing. You, you're not at the WGC, FedEx Memphis. You're back at Queenwood. And then the other part is talking yourself into success, right? You, you have this self-belief and, and you have the evidence of the success in practice. And then uh, bit by bit, you kind of reestablish that confidence that eroded through a lack of success, two things for our listeners to really kind of embrace, right? I also read, correct me if I'm wrong, that around 2018, you figured the art of scoring. It was like this shift where you became a player and maybe it's skill-based. And if the answer is skills, then it's a very short answer to the, to the question. But there was this shift in your ability to turn a bad round into a serviceable round that didn't you put, put you outside the cut line and kept you in contention when you were playing quite well. What was that?
2: It's funny because when I was playing badly, like I spoke about, is I I just basically told myself that something's going to happen, something good's going to happen at some point. Now, when it was started in two thousand eighteen in March April time, I I couldn't break par. I was shooting like one over, two over, three over, but I was com- confident that the direction I was going to go in, it was going to come and sort of that middle of the summer, get into the latter end of the summer. I would be like one over after nine and I wouldn't be panicking at all. I'd be like, mm. something's going to happen. Something good's going to happen. And I used to tell myself something good's going to happen. And then every time it happened, like I'd have three birdies in a row mm. and I'd shoot two under and I would have played terrible or I'd have got off to a flying start and I'd be like, well, if something bad happens well, it's meant to happen, so don't worry about it. Cause you're used to this shit basically. So I was like, if something bad happened, I'd, I'd always know that there's going to be a couple of holes where that would happen. And then sometimes they wouldn't come. And then I'd have a good finish. So these two o these two over rounds became one or two unders. And then my three or four under rounds became seven unders. So I was always I was always in the in the hunt to play well. So right. that's how it really worked.
1: And it's amazing how that influences the confidence, just that one or two shots difference when you're closing out a round, isn't it?
2: and you know like you see the guys and how good they are now like I I have some unbelievable scores like if you look at even Dubai last week or whatever I think I shot six over in the first round like I had a bad leg my caddy had COVID I had COVID the week before it was like it was a shit show from start to finish but it was such a great opportunity for me to tell to basically tell myself how mentally strong I could be because nothing went right nothing went right and then I was like shot six over and I was like all right, now we've got a task. We're not going to win, but we can get a task. And I think I was the the next three rounds, I was the third lowest player. You know, yeah. if I shot level par that week, I would have had a chance to win. Just so brilliant. it shows how low I can go, but obviously my low, my high scores need to get better. Right. And once that happens, then, you know, guys on the PJ Tour, you know, as in fans, they'll know who I am after, you know, 18, you know, a year, 18 months when, like, where this guy come from. But it's not that I haven't come from anywhere, it's just that my, my three overs and my two overs can now be under par and then all of a sudden I, I don't give any anything away. But you know, the WGC is a prime example. After two rounds, I was pretty much last. I think I was fifth to last and I went and finished second. So it yeah, yeah. shows I can go low. It's just, it's just a matter of trying to get them bad scores a little bit better.
0: There's so much good stuff to anybody listening to learn from that kind of mindset. And you said that we were being polite earlier with how I described the rough time. And then we spent like 30 minutes talking about it. It <laughs> doesn't feel quite, quite quite as polite, but I, I want to bring us now to a little bit more of the current. And you came over here or you, you got a, another one at Portugal. You came over here, you won in corn Ferry finals. You managed to, to get a PGA tour card in a way that most people are not able to do. And so first two parts to, to, Kind of getting caught up on where you are right now and, and looking forward to the year to come. But what were the differences that you noticed between kind of European Tour golf and now what you've experienced on the PGA Tour? Whether that be the type of golf that you're playing or just the the guys that you're playing against.
2: It's like anything. It's getting used to the courses, used to the environment, used to the travel, used to the scoring. Like if you said to me now, like Tom, what's the cut going to be in Abu Dhabi? I'd pretty much tell you what it's going to be right. roughly about. You know, I know I know what the course is going to be like. I know where the pins are going to be. So it took me a long time to get used to that. Whereas on the PJ tour, it's something new. You know, the guys stronger in depth, so you can't afford to have two average days. Which on the European tour you can. You know, that's no disrespect to the PJ, to the European tour players. That's just the fact is that I feel more confident that I can have a bit of a bad first round and a bit of a shaky second round and still make the cut. You can't do that on the PJ tour. If you look at Vegas, I think it was seven under par cut. Yeah. You know, there's no way it would be seven under par on the on the European Tour. It might have been four, might have been three. I don't know, but it wouldn't have been seven. So that's getting something I've got to get used to is is actually scoring and not being afraid to go low because I just don't know yet where the slopes are, where the pins are. You know what to expect from the weather perspective. You know, like I've never played Tory Pines, and so I've never played either of those golf courses. I've never played any of the three AT and T courses. So but I could tell you exactly what to expect at the Dunhill Championships because I've played Carnoustie, Kings Barnes, and St. Andrews. Shit weather is what you expect. Yeah, well, I know that it's going to be raining, (laughs) but it's kind of something that I've just got to get used to, but I can't use that as an excuse because if I use that as an excuse, you won't hear my name again, you know? So it's something that I've just got to go right. They've got a little bit of an advantage, but if I work really hard and I believe in my ability – I'll have chances to win. And if I get a chance to win, that gives me another opportunity to play for the next two or three years and have more experience that gives me more opportunities to win again.
0: Yeah. So what are you doing on the Monday through Wednesday? I mean, I imagine that your European tour week schedule will look a little different because you already have all that course intel. it maybe starts on Tuesday. Whereas I'm assuming at Tory, it's going to look a lot different. So how are you trying to close that gap in knowledge by being really proactive in how you approach your prep Monday through Wednesday?
2: So, like, on the European tour, for instance, it's so easy to, like, let's say, play a tournament, finish on a Sunday night, fly home, spend Sunday and Monday night at home, and then fly Tuesday morning, go straight to the golf course, hit some parts, hit some chips, play nine holes, then play the Pro-Am on a Wednesday. Let's say COVID, like, let's say yeah, it's right. not COVID year, normal year. We play the Pro-Am Wednesday, ready to go Thursday, because I know the course. Whereas PJ Tour is slightly different. I probably need to fly in Monday. Like let's say I've had a week before and I've played. So I might be on the road. I might fly Sunday night straight to the tournament. And then Monday, I'm like, right, okay, let's play nine holes. Let's play 18 holes Tuesday. And then Wednesday, I'm probably not in a pro am because I'm not one of them guys. So that's going to be a day of just preparing and figuring out what the way I want to play the golf course. And then obviously hoping that my preparation has been good for the Thursday. So I haven't found a rhythm on the PJ tour yet about what's the best way to prepare but you know like i've played vegas a couple of times now so i know what to expect from that golf course but there's only maybe two or three golf courses i've played twice so i know what to expect the rest of them is just going to be new to me and i'm just hoping that i get into a bit of a rhythm of knowing what works for me
1: so often we get into conversations with players about how to shift their performance. And uh, I want to speak, I want you to speak specifically to this year at Memphis. And you touched on it earlier where you went from uh, playing poorly to by your standards or by a PGA professional standards on Thursday and Friday. And then there was this just paradigm shift And you went out and what shot 61, then 64 on the weekend or something. Was there something you did on the range or is there something you go to when you're not playing as well to try and rapidly shift your performance?
2: I get told this by someone, but they were like, why are you trying so hard to like do well on a Thursday, Friday? Like you end up not giving yourself a chance to win. Then you say you don't care. So you go out and play great. So Hmm. I clearly need the mindset that I take on a Saturday and Sunday on onto a Thursday and a Friday but I haven't got that yet. And I don't think it's anything to do with me going on the range and then finding something. It's right. just a matter of clicking and getting into a bit of a rhythm of that's a driver off that tee. And I know where to, what to expect and them types of things. I don't think it's anything more than that. Mm-hmm. I, I just think I need to get better at my mindset on a Thursday, Friday and not try too hard to like be up there. Right. Because play, when it gets little, carefree, yeah. get mm-hmm. But get onto the first and, you know, pull out driver and go in, if I wang it in the water, go, that's all right, I was aggressive. Like I'm happy with that, you know, cause I can still win from there. It doesn't mean that I can't, but sometimes I'll be like, right. I'll just, I'll two iron it down there. Do you know what I mean? Seven iron in, you know, a three part. You're like, I might as well make Bodhi doing it more aggressively. So it's just, it's finding what works for me. And I just probably haven't quite found that yet.
1: Yeah. With all the conversations we've had with many of the best players in the world, including you, we oftentimes get into a conversation about game analysis and then goal setting. Do you look at stats? Many don't, many do. Do you set goals? Many don't, many do. Where do you sit as it relates to answering kind of those two questions?
2: Yeah, I look at stats. Like I I looked at them a lot last year, probably a bit too much. I I probably just didn't focus enough on just playing well. I tried to know what to expect from a course. So I basically got Richie Hunt to look at some stuff and basically tell me, projected winning's going to be 16 under top 10 is going to be this top 25 is going to be this these are the holes to look out for because i was basically trying to get knowledge from previous years to know what to expect from certain holes but sometimes being naive and not knowing something is always quite a nice thing because the amount of times pros hit driver on a practice on the first tour on a hole that they've never played before and it's gone into like an eight yard gap do you know what I mean? And they're like, right. I'm never going to hit driver again. It's like, <laughs> it's kind of canny, you know? So I kind of need that a little bit more, I think. So we've made an approach of, okay, what we're going to do is the caddy can get some information. I won't know anything. I'll go out there and do what I think is right. And just go with the flow. Just try and be as much, as, as aggressive as I can. Not trying to play safe, you know, trying to be, if I have to aim 10 yards right, be aggressive at that point. Not like, I guide it into the middle of the, into the middle of the green, you know, right. just not be scared to make mistakes. I think yeah. sometimes last year I looked into too much stats to kind of go, don't mess up on this hole. Make sure you make birdies on these holes. So I basically put too much pressure on myself. So I think I'm going to look at them every quarter. Cause I think when you look at my stats, it's very good from one, seven, five to 225. I think it's like one of the best top 10 players in the world. I think driving can be improved a little bit, but it's still, as long as I'm in the top half in every aspect, I'm fine. And I think only one of them is that, which is my short game between 10 and 20 yards, which I'm like one foot out. But basically we got from that is if I carry on doing what I'm doing, I will finish in the top 50 in the order of merit on the PJ tour for like a long time. So to me, that's not good enough because no top player will ever say that's good enough. But you look back and you think, well, top 50 in the order of merit is going to be a good career forever, you know, but I want to achieve better things. So, I want to improve every area much more, but I need to also sit back and go, you know what, Tom, you, you're on the right lines. just try and enjoy it. Don't panic.
1: Yeah. You touch on a, a subject that's pretty sensitive as, a, as, as we look at things through the lens of a coach. And that's the, is the cost of doing something greater than the cost of doing nothing? Your point is well-made that if I, just stayed the same. I'm going to finish in the top 50 on the OAM year in, year out. And that is an amazing career. It probably would put me in a position to win tournaments. I might win a couple. I mean, I might win a lot. Or is there some low hanging fruit that has very little to no cost to make improvements that would then put me into a top 10, top 15 player in the world, potentially. And that's like the the juggling act that you as players and we as coaches make. And it's a hard thing for any one person to sit back and say that there's no cost that comes with trying to improve, trying to make change, right? But you, you certainly sound like you take a really responsible attitude to that. The other part of the question I asked was goal setting because we hear from players like Justin Thomas famously, right? end of every year posts on Twitter or Instagram. These were my goals. These are, the, these are the ones I checked off. But you talk to another player like Bryson DeChambeau and he really doesn't, doesn't think about the analytical side and the, I know that sounds odd, or the goal setting side. So do you write your goals down and do you establish a plan to go out and achieve those?
2: Yeah, I do. I basically make sure that I have end of season goals. Like mm-hmm. they could be making the Ryder Cup team or winning my first PJ tour event or winning multiple times on, on Ava tour, like winning twice in one year, you know, they're the things that you can do like an overall, you know, stat, or you can also do like, for me, I also make sure that I am aware of all the little stats. So for me, like, I think I was 69th in the putting stats last year, but I'm working with Brad Faxon on it. And like Brad, I want to be number one on putt next year. Like it's probably unlikely, but I'm like, I feel like I'm on route to being a very, very good putter.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, obviously we all know that if you hit it better than most people, then you're not probably going to be the best putter in the world. But, you know, Tiger did it one year. So it's not to say that you can't.
1: Yeah, you can um, have aspiration, right?
2: You know, yeah. So there is other goals where I'm like, I really want to push in this area. But I think goal setting is, is good, but don't, it's kind of pet, like, write them down, but then put them aside and just focus yeah. as much as possible on The process over the first quarter. So for me, I'm going to focus on from now until the masters and say, look, this is what I want to achieve. This is where I want to get to in the world rankings. And this is where I I see my stats. You know, I want to improve between 100 and 150 yards because last year I sucked at that, but I don't want to lose my strengths because if you focus on all your weaknesses and get them a little bit better, but your strengths get worse, you become a worse player. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you obviously are really good on your long lines, you want to maintain that and chip away at all the weaknesses, then you become the an all-round better player. Right.
0: Yeah. Just raise the floor. Yeah. That's a beautiful book And the beginning of our conversations where you kind of attributed identifying or prioritizing the process over those results kind of uh, brought you out of that period from 2012 and on. If it's okay, we'll, we'll wrap up with a few kind of quick hit questions that we like to, to end each chat with. You get done with a round, uh, whether probably a European tour event. Um, you scan the leaderboard. Is there anybody that, as you're looking at the leaderboard, you take great pride in being ahead of? I imagine it's someone English. I'm, we may have uh, covered it. Maybe Eddie or, or Laurie. Eddie, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What about PJ Tour? Anybody on the on the list? It's like, okay, good. I'm glad I beat that guy.
2: Nah, nah. I think I don't really know. I I want to beat everyone, and sure. there isn't really anyone that stands out there might be some, if it's someone I dislike and I'm like, oh, I really don't want to lose to this person sure. But off the top of my head. I can't think if I can, I'll, I'll text you. But no, yeah.
1: what about uh, overcoming obstacles? If you're ranking overcoming your obstacles, was the greater obstacle, the difficult period of play that we just um, talked about? Or is the greater obstacle having friends like Eddie and Laurie?
2: Well, when I go to have conversation with Eddie, I realize that I'm actually not mental. He's the mental (laughs) one. Sure, yeah. (laughs) It's almost validating to know that. Yeah, it's actually nice to go to him because he makes me feel like he's crazy and I'm normal. Um, (laughs) But no, it's it's great to have different friends like Laurie and Eddie because we're all three completely different people and we all see the game completely different. So it is funny to see... You don't want to spend a lot of time with Ed sometimes because you think if I listen too much to this, I could actually create my own problem. But he uh, but he's but he believes in what he does and that it works for him and he's happy doing what he does. So we just yeah. laugh about it, you know. I think we spent three hours the other night, me, Laurie and Laurie's fiance and Eddie's fiancé, uh, are talking about Eddie and how crazy he is. So that yeah. was fun.
1: You guys are amazingly insightful, amazingly entertaining. So, to think that there's a time limit in spending with you guys, I just don't agree with that. But nonetheless, tell us your perspective on swing thoughts. What's the percentage of of rounds you play with a swing thought versus without?
2: I try to make sure that I don't have any more than two because if I have any more than two, the brain waves just slow down. It actually creates more problems. So, we've worked out that. I think your brain waves fire at about 272 mile an hour between the brains and the muscles. And if you have any more than two thoughts, it actually slows down way more than that mm-hmm. and creates a bit of an anxiety and pressure. So I think it's important to have some swing thoughts, but only a, a maximum two. When you don't think of anything, I think that's hard to actually get some sort of focus. Mm-hmm. But um, I try to make sure I write them down and say, right, these are today's goals. This is what I'm going to focus on. Beautiful. That's why I try to that- do.
0: What are the current swing thoughts right now? Just as coaches, we get curious about that sort of thing.
2: Uh, for me, I'm just basically trying to free it up. I'm trying to keep the the backswing a little shorter. It was trying to get a little long because I was trying to make it look really pretty. And like as I was making the top of the club face look really nice, you know, like slightly across the line, high hands, the body stopped turning, the arms kept going. So I had like this connection and it was getting narrow. So I want to make sure that I'm a little bit more connected here. And then I'm trying to stay more like keep my sternum on top of it you know, so my head doesn't back up. They're the only two thoughts I've got at the moment.
1: Beautiful. Last one, last one, mate. And there might be two different answers to this question. What's your favourite activity to do after, one, missing a cut, and number two, after a great week, so Sunday night?
2: I love eating um, frozen yoghurt. So <laughs> if I could eat, like, a pink berry or yoghurt land, if I could have any of those, I'd love to do that, good or bad. There isn't much. You know, it's always nice getting back to family and friends or... Right.
1: Celebrate with friends.
2: Going to Miami, going to 11, you know, something like that. Yeah. Good, good.
0: Beautiful. Well, uh, I, I imagine we may see you in Torrey. I think that's our first event that will be on site there. So we wish you best of luck getting out of the UK, first off. Hopefully crossed, able yeah. to get over here and have a great holiday. And we'll be cheering hard for you in the coming year. We appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us, Tom.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Cheers, will see you at Tory. Bye, mate. Yeah, yeah. see you, Cheers, Cam.
0: thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram. So follow at Altus Performance. And you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.